Enjoy local voices. Enjoy local opinions. All on one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast DC is the new local app with hundreds of DC area podcasts. Featuring some of the DC area's best personalities, pundits, and provocateurs. Earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts you love instantly. With new programs being added every week, don't hesitate. Download Podcast DC now for free. Available in the App Store or in Google Play. Podcast DC. Listen local. Say It Loud Network presents Corner Table Talk. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Corner Table Talk. Today, my guest is the esteemed Melba Wilson. Melba is the sole proprietor of Melba's in Harlem, New York City, and has been for the past 17 years, which is just incredible. What a run. Um, Melba is a fixture in New York, and some she you're a, a tourist attraction yourself, but uh, Melba is involved in, in charities and and causes and the restaurant is just a, a phenomenal place she has hosted celebrities regular folks it's the food is phenomenal she's been on news shows talk shows um, Kelly and Ryan and I happened to catch her about a year ago on 60 minutes when the pandemic was just unfolding and um, she had some very poignant things to say and was was extremely insightful and articulate so many of the concerns that we were facing in our industry so well. She's a fantastic spokesperson. And Melba is also the very first female and first person of color to be elected as the president of the New York City Hospitality Alliance. So we're going to get into some of those things with Melba. She's also the proud mom of a young man. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that too. Melba Wilson, welcome to Corner Table Talk. Thank you for joining us. Brad, thank you so much for having me. Um, anything that has to do with the table, you know I want to be there. <laughs> well, you make any table better by your presence. So thank you for, for joining us. So Melba, I kick things off usually with um, what we call short order questions. And you'll recognize that terminology it means just kind of easy stuff for you. So I would just want to get your take and a little feeling of your personality or, or give the guests that. So first thing, when not dining at Melba's, what restaurant do you frequent the most? Oh, I'm a huge fan of Sylvia's, Nobu, Carmine's, and definitely Rosa Mexicano. Oh, okay. And Sylvia's, uh, we should we should mention that uh, Sylvia, the famous Sylvia, is was your aunt, correct? You're related to the family. Yes. yes and you was. got your start at Sylvia's. So I sure did. Give Sylvia props. Sylvia, Nobu, some, some good places. Carmine's, yes, I recognize those restaurants. Um, these days, what is in heavy rotation on your playlist? Oh, um, you know, Megan Thee Stallion has been kicking it. So I love the new song by Megan Thee Stallion and Beyonce, a huge fan. Um, I'm listening to a lot of ASAP Berg, Harlem. He's born, bred and buttered in Harlem, just as I am. And I like going back uh, to my girl, Billie Holiday. Anything that has to do with jazz, bebop and easy listening. Yeah. Those are the things yeah. that I'm a fan of. Have you, you know, seen the um, U.S. versus Billie Holiday, the film? I have not seen it. I, You've got to see that. That woman's uh, uh, portrayal of Billie was just incredible. So, yeah, I, I highly recommend that. Um, with so many hours that you, I'm assuming you still spend a lot of hours on your feet. I know you have a full team. But since you do spend hours on your feet, what is your footwear of choice? <laughs> <laughs> 
keep it simple and don't judge me. I'm still a Crocs girl, you know? I'm a Crocs girl. I like them. They're easy, they're light, and they're comfortable. And they let my feet breathe. Brad, as you also know, being on your feet for so many hours, it's about comfort. And, you know, for me, style, when I'm going out to dine, of course, or when I'm heading out the door and not working, but when I'm on my feet in that kitchen or at any restaurant or, um, you know, one of my catering events, I'm a Croc girl still. I hear you. Uh, Crocs were never my thing, but uh, I had to switch to the, the, the old man shoe. I wore some new balances in my last couple of years at the restaurant because that was what my podiatrist told me I had to wear. Yeah, new um, balance are good because they're wide and yeah. Yeah, yeah, like a lot of support. Yeah. Um, what time of day, Melba, do you feel the most creative inspiration? I typically am create, most creative between four and nine o'clock in the morning. I'm an early riser and I feel that I get more done between 4 a.m. and 9 a.m. than most people do in an eight-hour day. The phone's not ringing. The emails have not, you know, aren't coming in at those hours. So that's my Melba time. That's my me time. And that's very important. Are you, are you, is it quiet and still or you have something soft going on in the background? Is there, what's, what's the? There's nothing going on in the background. Quiet. It's quiet and still. Yeah. You know, being in an industry where we're always surrounded by people, which I love, mm-hmm. people, food, music, chatter, our ears are always busy. And between four and nine, nothing's well, probably around about seven, things really start happening. Mm-hmm. So I would say four to seven is my personal time. And then I start with, with, with restaurant business. I and it. I think it's important to be quiet sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. With all that chatter. And, and of course, being in a city like New York, where the, the city doesn't sleep and you hear the city all the time, I, I can appreciate the uh, the quiet time. Um, where are you looking forward to traveling to next Ooh. like vacation destination or what city is, is stimulating you these days? Well, I will be spent. Uh, Rwanda is really stimulating me. Last March, I was scheduled to go to Rwanda, but of course, because of uh, COVID, my trip was was canceled. Um, but this month, I'll, I'll be in Aruba. Aruba is my go-to spot. Um, no humidity, perfect weather, blue beaches, blue mm-hmm. water, and white sand. So okay. Aruba is my go-to. Um, I'm also going to Hawaii for a wedding in June and spending New Year's Eve in um, Dubai. Wow. I'm, I, I'm, I'm ready. I have worked my butt off this last year. I need you. a vacay. I need a vacay. You know, everybody's yeah. wedding that was canceled last year is rescheduled for this year. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And these are, and Dubai is not a work related trip. So you're going to be able it, to enjoy yourself. It is not. It is Good not. For you. It, it is Good Christmas you. Day heading out. All right. So your fondest childhood memory that's food related. Oh, that's easy. Um, my fondest childhood memories that are food related would have to be my my mom, dad, brother and sister and I, every June after school ended, we would hop in the car and we would drive down to Hemingway, South Carolina. Hemingway, South Carolina is where my grandfather, my grandmother lived and my aunts and uncles on my father's side. And the reason I loved it is because we as city kids, Harlem city kids especially, we got to go out and play in the green. We got to run in the in the red clay, in the red clay streets. We got to go in my grandmother's garden and pick fruits and vegetables. And when you hear the, the term farm to table, you know, Southern folks are already doing farm to table before Nothing the new. point. That's <laughs> how we cooked, right? We got the chickens from the from the barn, you know. And um, I love the fact that my grandmother prepared meals with so much love and so much passion and that we all sat 
around at the table and we told stories. Mm. That's how I learned about my history, my ancestry, my culture. Everything in our family happened over food, mm-hmm. whether it was a celebration, whether it was a death, a funeral, a repast. Everything happened over food. So my fondest memories of food has to be with my family celebrating it in Hemingway, South Carolina. Yeah, yeah. Are, are both parents, I know uh, some, some of your family's from South Carolina, are both parents from South Carolina? They both are from South Carolina, yes. Wow. Did, did they met there? Um, my mom and dad um, met in South Carolina and my stepfather, who actually raised me from the time I was two, he's from North Carolina. Okay. So, yeah. All right. All right. So this is going to be the most difficult question I'm going to ask you. I'm really going to challenge you here. Okay. All right. Of the legendary New York City radio personalities, I have Vaughn Harper, Jerry Bledsoe, Bi Higginson, or Frankie Crocker. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, Frankie Crocker, if your radio, if I'm not on your radio, your radio radio really isn't on. Um, Vaughn Harper, Quiet Storm, that Mm. velvet voice. Mm. You know, um, I have so many great memories of all of them. Bi Higginson, Mama, I want to sing. Right. You know, you got to know when to leave the party. I remember that song. (laughs) Oh, my God. Jerry Bledsoe. So I I would personally have to say Vaughn Vaughn Harper. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably because I interacted more so with him. Vaughn used to come into Sylvia's all the time and his favorite table was by the jukebox. Mm-hmm. So I knew that Mr. Harper would be coming in between three and four. I would always leave that table open for him. So. And was he selecting songs on the jukebox? Oh, definitely. Yeah. There was only yeah. one table by the jukebox and that was the Vaughn Harper table. That's fantastic. So, and, and Vaughn always went out of his way to give words of inspiration and to encourage mm-hmm. all of us there at Sylvia's. So I, I would definitely have to say Vaughn Harper, yeah, but I'm, I, I'm a I big fan. I wouldn't argue with that. Yeah, he but I'm was, a big he was such fan. a gentleman. Mm-hmm. He really, really was. But I'm a yeah. huge fan of the other three as well. Right? How could you not be? Right? Growing up in New York, those are the those are the voices that we heard. Um, and it's funny you you mentioned the jukebox. You know, we had a jukebox at the cellar that we did not own. I don't know if, if your aunt Sylvia owned hers, but we did not own ours. And every week, the the mob guys would come and empty the jukebox, empty the cigarette machine, and the payphones. And I'd be like, Isn't that so? That's a lot. There's a lot of, a lot of a lot coins of going out the door. Yeah. Oh, I had so many great times at the cellar as well. Yeah. Well, thank you. So no, but thank you again for taking some time. I know you're incredibly busy, and restaurants are starting to come back online in New York and. Dining and and plus your your responsibilities at the hospitality alliance as the president. There's a lot going on. A lot of people looking to you. Um, but I would be remiss. And of course, by the time the show actually hits the air, it'll be a few weeks after. But you know, we just saw again another you know unfortunate tragedy when the police are encountering young African Americans uh, that and end up with with somebody dead. And and this time it's a young man, um, Dante Wright. And you know, we watched protests in the streets again last night. And, you know, we, we just can't seem to escape this, can we? Um, you know, the system is flawed. The system needs to be dismantled. Um, it's I'm a mother of a 21-year-old gentle giant. My son is 6'9". Wow. And there's not a time that he does not walk out of my door that I don't wonder if this will be the last time I see my child. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and I was talking about the talk. And she goes, oh, yeah, when my son was 16, I had to talk with him too about what to do with girls and sex and how to treat them. And it was only then that I realized that she didn't know what I meant when I said the talk. Mm -hmm. We as Black parents, as Latino parents, we have to have the talk with our 
kids from the time they're seven, eight, nine, ten. And the talk does not, and we're blessed if they make it to 16, to have the talk about sex and, and girls, etc. The talk for every Black parent is how to respond, not if a cop approaches you, but when. Not if. How, how to look at them, how to speak to them, what to say, what not to say, where to put your hands. Mm -hmm. This is a talk that is embedded in my fiber and my soul. And it's an unfortunate talk that I have to have with my son and his friends on a regular basis. The only thing we want is we don't, our kids are not a threat, but they are threatened. Our kids are just like their kids. And when I look at the fact that people can break into the Capitol, kill a Capitol police officer, and I have to tell you, it broke my heart to see the daughter of the officer that was slain, who had to be seven or eight years old, consoling her mother, wiping her mother's tears this morning. But a kid who has an air freshener in the back of his car window, who has not done a thing, is shot dead. This has to stop. This has to stop. You know, I'm, I'm also a, a father and my son is a little bit older than than your son. So, you know, it's it's the difference. What, what you just described, I watched Trayvon Martin's mom on CNN last night, who eight years later is still just, I mean, this is her, this is the reality for her now. Her son would be eight years older and having the life that he would have had. And she's still dealing with that grief. The margin for error for us in that situation is so thin. I don't know if you watched the serviceman that got pulled over and decided to wait until the he got to a lighted area. He described I remember Richard Pryor talking about, I'm reaching into my glove compartment for my wallet because I don't want to be no mm, accident. Mm -hmm. And here we are. That's what we deal with. Our margin of error is like next to nothing. One false move. Yes. And it's judge, jury and executioner. And to echo what you just said, Melba, it has got to stop. Yeah, it it really um, breaks my heart. But I know that we have to be proactive. Um, but when I see on January January 6th, people just storming the Capitol. <laughs> Just storming the Capitol. They're arrested. They're not killed. They're not shot. They're not slaughtered. They're not gunned down. Why are our lives less valuable? We built this country. Our lives are not less valuable. I think that there's a fear of our greatness. There's a fear of our brilliance. And systemic racism at the end is not going to win because love always wins over hate. Yeah. Well, we'll, um, we'll direct uh, the show towards the subject matter that, um, you know, we intended. But, uh, I really felt it necessary. I know you were a mom, you're a mom, and uh, it just, I, I could not move past that story. My condolences to uh, Dante Wright's family, and um, we carry on, Melva. So um, last year, I caught you at the beginning of the pandemic on one of my favorite programs. I love 60 Minutes, and uh, I miss Ed Bradley still, you know, to this day. I loved uh, what he what he brought to that show, but I still watch 60 minutes every day. And Melba, I thought what you what you said and how you spoke on 60 Minutes spoke for so many of our folks in the restaurant industry. And when I say our folks, I mean everyone, all all colors. We all are united under the banner of hospitality and have the, the soul in our spirit is giving, right? That's what we do. I say what I do for a living is I pull out chairs for a living. That's what I do, right? <laughs> yes. But no, but you, you were just so poignant and, you know, your face is just open and honest. And I don't know how anybody could have not watched that show or could have watched that show and not been so moved by what you described. You talked about champ. You talked about, uh, 
Elisa, Alicia, I think, the mom, Elisa. the young mom, mm-hmm. and how, you know, we are pillars in our community. We provide jobs and those jobs provide the means for families to support themselves, for child care, for all, all, of, the, all, all of the necessities. Restaurants are vital, right? Not, not even, we haven't even talked about what they mean to us socially and uh, as gathering places, but you spoke about those people and those folks. And I'm wondering, how are you holding up? How have you kept yourself together this past year with all of the challenges and all the weight on your shoulders? And how have you managed to motivate the folks that look to you for support and motivation? Brad, it has been one year and it's been a hell of a year. It's been an unexpected year. Um, but as you know, those of us who get into the food and beverage industry get into it not for the money. We all know that because the profit margins are extremely slim. We get into this industry because of the passion and our need to serve others and make others happy by using food. That's the reason we get into this industry. We, we're caregivers. We love taking care of others. March 15th, we'd heard about COVID-19 and we heard that the city would probably shut down. It was a possibility. Even though I knew it was a possibility, I did not think it was a probability. I got a call from the mayor's office uh, saying that eight o'clock on Monday, we would have to close down to indoor dining. You're looking at March. That's the beginning of the beginning for us, right? We're going into the spring season, summer, be great, busy. People come out to eat. Um, I called a, a, an emergency meeting with my team. I had 39 employees at the time, 39 full, full-time employees, not including catering and not including the other place that was supposed to open March 30th. I want to talk about that. Melba's muscles is what you're referring right. to, right? Yeah, we'll talk right. about that. I called a meeting. Um, some people came in. Some people called in, in, a, in a call in line. And that by far had to be one of the hardest days of my life since I've been working in this industry. And I started working in the industry in 1987. Mm-hmm. To tell my team that due to no fault of their own, they would no longer be able to come to work. We didn't know how they were going to get paid, um, how they were going to feed their families. It was devastating to me. You know, they're not just my employees per se. They're my restaurant family. And working in this industry and being on your feet for 10, 11, 12, 16 hours a day, you take care of each other. You don't just take care of the guests. You take care of each other. I know the families, the kids' names of my employees, but I have to tell them that I didn't know how long, when it was going to be over. I couldn't say it's going to last a week, a month, two months, three months. I had no clue. It was devastating because they did nothing to deserve this. But I knew that we had to keep our employees and our staff safe and we had to do our part. And if closing down was it, it's what we had to do. Um, luckily, we were able to give our employees, you know, a little stipend of something that we had to hold, you know, hold them over or to contribute to help them pay some bills. But it, it, it was a tough time. It was really, really a tough time. Um, we're New Yorkers. We're resilient. Didn't see it coming like this. So, Melba, what with with all of that uh, stress and folks looking at you like you should have the answer, they rely on you to have the answer. What did you do for yourself? How how did you when you walked out of that restaurant and on your way home? What what was it? What was your dialogue, your inner dialogue that just kept your faith and your strength and how you got from one day to the next? Well, being born, bred, and butted in Harlem and being around over. 300 churches in Harlem. There's a lot of faith in my spirit, in my soul, and in my upbringing. You know, I've been on 114th and A for 17 years. On this particular day, when I left the restaurant, Brad, I looked to my right, and there's an amazing monument, a statue of Frederick Douglass. Put my head down, and I looked to my left, and there's my favorite statue, and that's the one and only Harriet Tubman. And on this day, this particular day, it was like I had an epiphany. And I was like, you know what, Melba? If Harriet Tubman could build an underground railroad, what a 
heck am I to complain? We come from a group and our ancestors, our forefathers are so strong. They've seen so much. They've gone through so much. And I could just hear my grandmother going, Melby, this too shall pass. And I knew that I had to step up, step out and step forward and provide hope. I provided myself with armor. You know, prayer is, is everything to me. Uh, but, you know, along with prayer, there's got to be some deeds, right? <laughs> you know, you just can't pray and say, what's that story about the guy where he was in the boat and he was he was drowning? And they said, uh, he said, no, no, no. Somebody threw him a life, a life jacket. No, no, no. My God will save me. Someone, you know, threw him a rope. No, no, no. My God will save me. Someone came by in a speedboat. No, no. My God said he would save me. The guy drowns. He goes to heaven. He goes, God, what happened? You said if I ever needed you, you'd be there. You'd save me. God said, my dear, dear son, I threw you a life jacket. I tried. So I say all of that to say that faith yeah. without deeds is, is, is just that. So what I did was I surrounded myself with other people in my industry, you know, members from the New York City Hospitality Alliance, board members, my friends, um, also in the industry, my family members. And collectively, it was about support. How do we support each other? What do we do? How do we get creative? So one of the things um, that my team came up with when we sat down and had our meeting was to change our hours. First thing we did, we said, well, let's open from 12 to 12. This way we can keep as many people um, working as possible and just see what the need is. Because now that people aren't going to work, maybe they'll want to eat at different hours. So we did that. Um, we got more active on social media. We developed uh, family menus that were at a reduced price. But one of the most important things we did to help our spirit was we decided to give back as we always did. But this time we decided to give back to frontline workers, nurses, doctors that were on the front line because we heard and saw on television that, that they had been working straight through 12 hour shifts, 14 hour shifts. And for us, it was like, you know, let's, let's feed some of these people. So it was good for them, good for the frontline workers, but it was also good for us. It gave us a sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. And so that those are some of the things we did. And that's, that's beautiful. And on the, but again, going back to the thin line, you know, the, the, the margin, profit margin. So, you know, you're, you're feeding these folks. Where's, are you just dipping into what, you know, the, the profits as thin as they might be when, when offering those kinds of services? Well, we did, there are a couple of things. The CBS piece that you mentioned mm -hmm. was such a blessing. Um, we were fortunate enough to get a call from Gail King right after. And Miss King was like, Melba, what can we do? Mm -hmm. And she decided she wanted to, to feed all the employees at Harlem Hospital for one month. Oh. And that's what she did. Oh, that I is what that. she did. Wow. So, but we also got calls from all around the world. People watch 60 Minutes. So we decided to take those funds and donate them back to the community. Yeah. We also did a lot of work with World Central Kitchen. And we also took some of those funds and, and took care of our, our staff. And that's what we did. And that was our way of giving back. And we ended up giving back over 200,000 meals, which the Knicks just honored us for um, on Sunday. Congratulations, Melba. Wow. Yeah. That that's that is really amazing. And and it's so just it's it's just wonderful to hear how people do step up that have means and, and do good things. Harlem Hospital is just just such an important institution in Harlem and has produced so many great doctors and employs so many wonderful nurses and been around for over a hundred years. And it's just uh, what a what a great thing for Gail to do. Let's yeah. let's talk about a little bit about and, the new And York. I was born in Harlem mm -hmm. Hospital, I have to say. Were you? Okay. I was born in Harlem Hospital. I was born in Mount Sinai. A little ah. further downtown, but New yeah. York City. Um, let's talk about a little bit about the uh, work that uh, New York City Hospitality Alliance is doing. I just read where uh, you guys are, are lining up to take on the insurance companies for denying claims that were made for business interruption. I mean, these insurance companies, are, there's something else, man. <laughs> you know, how are you going to deny restaurants claims for a business interruption?
interruption this year. So what, what's that about, Mel? What's going on there? Well, it's such a racket. You know, we pay our insurance fees, which are astronomical every month. And the reason that we have insurance is because in case something happens, we're covered, right? Well, guess what? We are covered, but the insurance companies, they don't want to pay us. So um, we need to be covered for, for business interruption. You know, it's, it's in our policies. And so there's a myriad of things that we're working on right now with the Hospitality Alliance, um, which I'm super duper proud of. Um, and as you stated earlier, I am the, the first female and the first person of color, um, but I've been the president for a little over two years now. Um, some of the other things that we're working on is we're looking to make it permanent so that we can get cocktails with your takeout and delivery orders. Um, another thing that we are working on are the third party delivery fees. Oh my God. Did you know that companies like Grubhub and Uber charge us 30%? Yeah. So what does that mean? That means that if your bill is $30, they, nine of $9 of that goes to them. And then they also charge you as a client, a service charge or a service fee as well. So they're racking up. And the New York State Liquor Authority says that anybody that gets, so they're getting 30% of our profit. Anybody that gets 10% or more must be on the liquor license. Mm. So we've been fighting, um, we've, we've gotten it down to 20% at the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Um, however, we're fighting to make it permanent and to put a cap on it so that it's permanent. That's one of the other things we're fighting about. And um, we want to reform the grace period for fines and penalties from restaurants. There are over 6,000 rules and regulations for small businesses. Now, Brad, I can fry some chicken, but I am not a lawyer. So New York City presently makes it very, very difficult for small businesses to operate in the city. And I can tell you firsthandedly that a lot of our members are opening up restaurants in Austin, in Charlotte, in Chicago. People are leaving, unfortunately, leaving New York City. So I'm pleading with the administration, the mayor, and we've met with, um, we've had a forum with the uh, mayoral candidates that they've got to make it a lot easier in this city to do business here. Yeah. So we're hoping to get some reform on those things. Yeah, too many antiquated laws, Melba, that just don't serve the intended purpose that they were written for, you know, 70 years ago. Um, totally. Yeah. You know, I talked to, uh, I had Valerie Simpson on the program not yeah. too long ago and Nelson George recently too. And, you know, Val has a great uh, spot on um, 72nd Street and and, a, and both of them mentioned something. I wanted to get your take on it, that um, during the pandemic, outdoor dining, of course, because you couldn't have indoor dining in the city, relaxing, um, you know, the, the permit process and, and allowing for that created like this vil- village kind of buzz you know, out on the street and, and that kind of street life. Do you see that as something that might stick permanently or, or the, the the burden of how to do that be a little bit lessened on operators to create a little bit more vibrant outdoor cafe life? Well, I have to start off by saying I love Sugar Bar and, <laughs> and she's amazing, amazing. Yeah. I've done her several times and Nelson George, of course, known from way back in the days of Sylvia's. Um, so yeah, um, Mayor de Blasio did come up with a plan with DOT and Small Business Services and and they did streamline the process. We were uber excited. Normally, when you file for outdoor seating and outdoor permit, we would normally start in February to file to, to have outdoor seating. And hopefully by March or May, you would get approved. You would have to hire a lawyer to do, to do the paperwork. You would have to hire an architect to provide the drawings. And of course, you have to pay an outdoor licensing fee. Um, what they were able to do during the pandemic was I went online, submitted a drawing that I did myself. And within six minutes, I was approved and there was no cost. So when you're looking at a city that is the hospitality capital of the world and where we have over 24,000 restaurants and employ over 300,000 people, putting people back to work and contributing to the economic
economic success, not just of the city, but of our communities is imperative. Outdoor seating was a lifeline that we so desperately needed to bring people back to work. Um, I'm hoping, and I have spoken to the mayor about continuing this, as well as the uh, future mayoral candidates. So we're hoping that it is something that is continued. It, it, right now, I think it is continued up until September. So we at Melba's now, we seat 109 indoors. We were able to seat 86 with outdoor seating. And David Rockwell came in and um, Bill Ackman came in and they did a beautiful outdoor um, space for us with a program called Dine Out New York. Not just for us, but they went all through all five boroughs and did quite a few other restaurants. They did Chinatown, um, what's the place? Oh, Negril, Brooklyn, quite a few, SoCo in um, Queens. They did a bunch of different different restaurants, but it was it was a great program. And we are hoping that it is continued indefinitely. Yeah, and that would be great. Now, well, let's stay on the, the subject of employment for a second. Um, you know, there was an article in the New York Times recently about the um, the lack of bodies <laughs> in New York available for hospitality work. I think someone at Tom Colicchio's staff estimated that about 85 percent of their staff had moved out of the city. And, um, you know, I remember having been in L.A. for the past, you know, 25 years, I'd say about 10 years ago, we started experiencing staff shortages for the very first time. And I, I mean, I can remember when we would advertise for hospitality job restaurant positions and it would be like an open call for a Hollywood movie. We get a couple of hundred people that would show up and yeah. get to pick and choose and have second calls and third calls. Well, that has dwindled now to the to the extent that these jobs, we, they, they, we can't find bodies to fill them. And I'm, I'm curious if you guys are looking at that at the Hospitality Alliance, what you're seeing there. How are we going to get some more some more bodies available for work um, to start to fill some of these positions that are that are desperately in need of being filled? Oh, my God. What a great question. And it's a, it's a conversation that Drew Neopar and I had a couple of weeks ago. You are 110 percent, unfortunately, correct. Um, to your point, Brad, there was a time. I mean, we've never experienced a shortage of potential um, restaurant staffers or family members. We've never had that before. So this is the first for us. Um, as you stated, you you put an ad in Craig's, Craigslist and, mm. you know, wherever, indeed, and they come. Um, you know, we're looking to staff muscles at this time, and it's been very, very difficult. So one of the things that we're talking about is, first of all, going to ICE, the culinary, you know, Institute mm. for Cul Culinary Ex Excellence, and employing people from there, but also starting out younger. The High School of uh, Food and Finance, I love, love their, their program. Being involved and taking these kids and mentoring them with on-the-job training at an early age, um, I think that's the way for us to really capture the young chefs and people mm -hmm. who want to be in this industry's hearts, is, yeah. is we have to start early and looking at the high schools that promote um, the hospitality industry. And Mel, you know, as, as African-Americans in this industry, um, you know, and, and given our, our troubled past with um, servitude, We'll, we'll say. Um, I've experienced it. And when we opened Post and Beam in South Los Angeles, mind you, you know, it's a, a predominantly black neighborhood. And we advertised for, you know, open positions. And of the 60 or so people that showed up, I had five African-American applicants. And, you know, we're not talking about just people of color broadly. I'm speaking specifically mm -hmm. about African-Americans here because I've had Latinos that would work uh, for me that it would, like you said, Champ did take, you know, a bus and two trains to get to work. I've yes. had young Latin kids that would do the same thing, you know, leave their house at four in the morning, go work a morning job, come to me for their afternoon job. Yet I see some of my people that live across the street that won't cross the 
street for the busing job, for the dishwashing job. I actually had someone, a New York City street legend, whose name I won't mention, call me on the phone and personally chastise me for hiring his nephew as a busboy because no bu- no, no relative of his is going to work as a bus. There's this thing that we have about this work, yet here are these jobs and we know our unemployment numbers and what they are. What just, um, I don't mean to go on about that, but what, what's your take on that and, and why we still seem to some of our young folks still not do not look at those jobs as upwardly mobile opportunities. It's a starting point, but then you could end up as Melba Wilson one day. Brad, you are preaching to the choir. Hallelujah, somebody. Okay. Wow. I started out as a cashier. I would have taken any job. I was happy to have a job. And I think the mindset of everything Insta is here. I, re- I recall the encyclopedia man coming to my parents' house and my mom would give him a down payment on the Britannica encyclopedias. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Anybody oh, yeah. out there <laughs> know what I'm talking about. They had the gold pages, the gold leaf pages. I don't know if the gold was real, probably not. But I loved looking at those encyclopedias. Whenever I wanted to know something, I would pick up letter B, the one for B, C, whatever I wanted to find out. And I would take time and go flip through the pages. It was a journey of finding out the information that I wanted. It wasn't instant. It was a journey. The beauty of life is in the journey. I love the computer. However, there was a time I remembered everybody's phone number from the top of on the top of my head. Mm-hmm. I can no longer remember that. I think we're living in a world where everything is at your fingertips. And I don't know if that's necessarily great. It might be good. Don't know that it's great. And so I think when I look at a lot of our people, there, there's an instantaneous thing that everybody wants and they don't want to go through the journey. But my grandmother says anything that goes up fast comes down fast. And so I find that a lot of our kids are not prepared for the come down because we know life is like a roller coaster. And I can tell you as an entrepreneur and especially as a black and especially as a female entrepreneur, it is a roller coaster. So there are times when it's not always going to go up. It's got to come down. And the only way to be prepared for those times are if you've gone through the journey. So had I not started out as a cashier and worked my way up to a hostess and then to a manager and then working at Rosa Mexicano and working in the kitchen with Josefina Howard, et cetera, and, and going, traveling around the country with um, Artie Cutler and Michael Ronis and Godfrey Palestino and Mr. Wong from Ollie's at Carmine's and, and, and done all of that and, and been with Drew and, and Bob for years, I wouldn't be prepared for the pitfalls. You see, the journey prepares you for those times when the roller coaster comes down. And I think that our kids don't know that, they don't understand that starting at the bottom teaches you about the bottom and there's no place to go but up. But the bottom is, is, is beautiful to me. There's no day that I won't go in Melba's and wash dishes, mm-hmm. clean the toilet, wipe a table. But I was doing that after the, um, Ambassador Shabazz can tell you. When I was at Sylvia's, it was nothing for me to go in instead of getting the busboy to go and clean the table myself because I took joy and I also took pride. Um, and I think that's the beauty of life. So I feel that my mom's generation, my generation, we came up understanding that and understanding the value, the value in building yourself, your brand, whatever you're working on from the bottom up. Because what does that do? That builds a strong foundation. Our kids are also at a record high number for suicide, for suicide for the first time. And personally, I think a lot of it has to do with wanting instant gratification and not being able to deal when they don't reach that or when they reach it and come back down. Yeah. Some really you know profound points, Melba, you make there. And, and certainly the, the social media component of seeing the lives projected back at them that look 
so perfect. And he's on the private jet and drinking champagne. And then that's that, that you don't, you don't, you're not looking at the, the, the dishwashing job first, the busing tables job next, the bartending job after that. There, there's a process and, and the steps through that process are what give you what you were just speaking of the character and also the appreciation for the process. Because to your point, it is about the journey. Because if you keep thinking that it's that next thing that's going to make me happy, you ain't going to get there. You are not going to be happy. So, um, let's turn a little bit here. I want to talk a little bit about Harlem. Um, you know, I, I grew up on the Upper West Side, but spent quite a bit of time. I played basketball in college and a lot of my buddies uh, lived uptown. And so I spent a lot of time playing ball in those in the projects, in those parks, in those tournaments. And, and in Rutgers, you know, Rutgers with Bob McCullough. I didn't play in Rutgers, but I, I played in, in King Towers. I played across yeah. from uh, uh, 22 West. Yeah. Um, I, I never did play at Rutgers. Uh, so I'm um, um, sad to say that. But, you know, Harlem, Melba, since the time that you've uh, grown up, you mentioned you grew up on 114th Street and 8th Avenue. I mean, I can remember driving, you know, around Harlem and when both sides of 8th Avenue were nothing but dope fiends, you know, and it was like a horror movie. I had a cousin that I lost to heroin and I've had several friends over the years that I lost to drug related violence. Harlem had a very rich history prior to the 70s and the 80s when we saw the effects of heroin and then crack uh, just kind of dismantle our community. And a lot of those beautiful buildings in your very neighborhood stood empty and boarded up those beautiful brownstones that are now selling for, you know, considerable amounts of money, I'm sure. Give us just a little bit of taste. Of, and, and Harlem now is a brand again. It's like <laughs> you say Harlem and it's like, you know, you, you might as well be talking about Rockefeller Center. You know, there's tour buses uptown. <laughs> I couldn't believe it the first time I saw that. But give me give us just a little bit of taste of Harlem and through your eyes as a young lady growing up there to now what you've been able to achieve and your first name basis with the mayor and Bob talking to Nero. Um, just give me give us a little bit of taste of, of how Harlem looked to you as a young lady, Melba, and, and how you look at that. That, that beautiful part of New York City now. Yeah, I was born bread and buttered, as I always say. It's always the first thing out of my mouth. Um, Harlem's always been a jewel. It's just now the rest of the world knows it. It is the culture. It is the mecca for Black culture around the world. Um, Harlem is rich in its history. It's rich in the arts. Uh, great poets, great, great food, great fashion, great style, and the architecture. And let's not forget music. Bebop was born in Harlem. Minton's Playhouse, the started out with uh, the, the house band used to be Dizzy Gillespie, Dizzy Gillespie, Thelonious Monk, and Charlie Parker. And so when you think the about house band, the house band, right, right, right. <laughs> right. I went up, I went up to uh, Minton's um, because it was uh, Drew, myself, and as you say, Mr. Uh, uh, De Niro, were thinking about opening it up in 1993, 1994. You can call him Bob. That's her. Okay. okay. We'll call him Bob. 1993, 94. And, um, you know, we were originally thinking to open up something in a theater district and me and my big mouth said, why don't we re reopen Minton? And um, I, we took a tour up to, I brought them uptown to show it to them. And Quincy Jones, just a tear came down uh, his face. Uh, he remembered going to Minton's and seeing Charlie Parker mm. when when Quincy Jones was, was very, very young. And so when you think 
about Harlem. Harlem is so beautiful. So beautiful. It has um, it has five bridges that connect to it, and it has the best uh, train and bus system than any place else in the city. So it's extremely accessible. In terms of getting down to the World Financial Center, it takes 20 minutes. So in a city where money is time and time is money, it's all about access. And Harlem has that. Me growing up as a little girl, um, your neighbors were your family. I grew up on 144th between 7th and 8th. My aunt lived on 137th. We would go visit her and her kids all the time, her, her six kids all the time. And um, Harlem was a community. It was, when I was walking to school, it was my neighbors, Melba, Mel, you got your lunch. Girl, make sure you cross that street. You know, it was it was a community where it was about love and people took care of each other. I also knew that I was, if I did something naughty, that my neighbor would pop me on the hand and then I would get home and my mom or dad would do the same. So, but they did that out of love and they did that because we cared. Harlem really was a village for me growing up. And it was a village of extended family members that showed you love and that took pride in raising each other and feeding each other and nurturing each other. And that's the Harlem that I remember. Harlem did take a change. It took a turn. It took a turn for the worse. And heroin, crack, and then crack after that. And um, it really, really took a change. Um, and that's when my mom and dad said, we have to move out of Harlem. Mm -hmm. And so we moved where? To the South Boogie Down Bronx. Yes. <laughs> but we moved to the South Bronx. Um, mm -hmm. And I ended up, after I graduated school, I had to come back to Harlem. Harlem is where my heart is. Harlem is where I grew up. And when I opened Melba's on 114th Street, I purposely chose that block because 114th Street was one of the most notorious drug blocks in Harlem. Yeah. I remember in 2004, as we were building the space, I would see people walk down 114th Street one way, five minutes later, after they got a hit of that crack, come back looking totally different. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason I chose the block. I wanted to provide people in my neighborhood, in my community, an opportunity. You, I don't want you to go down the street and sell blocks. I'm, I don't want you to go down the block and sell drugs. You can come right here. You can get a job as a busboy, as a dishwasher, as a chef, as a receptionist, as a hostess, as a server, whatever. You can come here and get a job. Melba, so I don't have to tell you how brave that was. I mean, it, it, you're, you know, it, it is your neighbor, it is your home, but still, we know what that activity was like and what those days were like. Crackheads were crazy and, and the streets were, were nuts back then, but you, you, you know, you decided to take the chance. Where, where did you get that confidence that just said, you know what, I, I can do this? Being born and raised in Harlem gave me, gave me the confidence and it was probably a little crazy, but um, <laughs> because I've seen so much in my community, I felt if not me, who? And if not now, when? Mm -hmm. There were no other sit-down restaurants on Frederick Douglass in 2004, none. There was a Chinese to-go spot, takeout, but there were no sit-down restaurants. And I loved 8th Avenue and I still do. You know, I love the fact um, that it's so close to Morningside Park. I love Morningside Park. I love the greenery, but I also love the architectural history of the neighborhood. And mm -hmm. uh, I chose 114th Street because of that. And now it's considered Harlem's Restaurant Row. Yes, and it is. And I'm super excited to have played a small yeah, part. And, and yeah, a, a big part in that. Yeah, my dad and I would play tennis at the Harlem Armory quite a bit in the in the 80s. And uh, we'd go over to Perks. Yeah. Perks on 123rd Street and, and eat. Yeah, and that was, and, that was uh, one of our spots. And Manhattan. And Manhattan. Yeah, 123rd exactly. in Manhattan. Yeah. Yes, now yeah. a restaurant called Clay. I've, I've heard, yeah. And then we'd play the number, you know, at Perks right around the corner, too. Yeah. So <laughs> you oh, can do that, too. Real food. <laughs> you can do that, too, right? That's the dessert right there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we love Mr. Um, Perks. He was such a sharp dresser too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. great, great character. And your great dad character. too. Your dad was a sharp dude. He man. could wear some stuff. Yeah, my pops what? could wear some stuff. Yeah. Those were that, the guys. that generation, Melba. You know, what? I mean, 
mean, that, again, we're talking about, you know, the generation just before you and I and, yes. uh, you know, we us being the beneficiaries of, you know, the, the, the trails that they blazed for us. Amen. And that, that is one of my my um, subjects, I guess I wanted to before we go. There, there are a couple of things I wanted to touch on. One is Melba's muscles, but the other and maybe we'll do that first. Let's touch on Melba's muscles. And then I want to just talk about the legacy, the importance of a Melba Wilson having a public persona and being able to create the infrastructure for the next generation. But before we do that, tell me a little bit about Melba's muscles. I love muscles. I love seafood. I can't wait. So tell me what was when is this happening. You have to come. You have to come. We're waiting for um, it to be at 70 um, seating capacity to be at 75% minimum. Mm -hmm. So we are looking for staff right now. But Melba's muscles, I, I love, love muscles. Um, and I wanted to do something to dedicate to women mm -hmm. um, and to show that we too have muscles. And so what we're doing at Melba's muscles is we are making muscles 11 different ways. 10 of them will be named after different women who have made an impact on so many of our lives. Like there will be the Michelle O muscle. There's the Frida Kahlo muscle, which has chorizo and, and uh, fried tortillas coming out of it. There is the Ella muscle. You know, of course, there's the Harriet, um, which is a Perlo. There's a gumbo. So that's what we're doing. We're taking uh, muscles and we're naming them after 10 different women. The 11th muscle will be named after who, whatever's trending. And that's important to us. So it may be like the Brianna muscle or something like that. Um, but it's a seafood spot. And I love seafood. As you know, having lived in New York City, you know how many of us go to City Island. Oh, well, let's man, bring some is. of that City Island revenue and let's employ people, you know, that look like us from Lenox Avenue in East Harlem at Melba's Muscle. And might, it's a corner might space. Might I see a, a lobster roll on the menu? Yeah. Maybe? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love now. corner spaces. And we're also getting our muscles from an amazing sister who used to work with me 12 years ago. And when I say sister, I mean female, who mm -hmm. used to work with me 12 years ago, Anna, who is um, one of the only fisher women in North Carolina. And so to be able to give her the business and her product is phenomenal. I went down and harvested mussels with her um, in 2019. Ooh. So we're super excited about yeah, that. Yeah, I, I thought that was a really interesting part of the story that she used to work for you. She left New York, went and opened this this business. And now here it is full circle. You're you're able to open a concept and do business with her and supplying shellfish to you. I just I think that's just so cool, Melba. Well, it's, um, about empowering, I, it's about empowering women mm -hmm. and, and, and working together. You know, men do it all the time. They do it all yeah. the time. They, you know, and, and, and I love when we as women work together. You know, we're, we're multitaskers. Um, we're great business women. And I think that we should seek out other, other business women to do business with as much as we can. I'm all for women power. I think we need more. The world needs more of that. Um, so before I let you go, let's just touch on um, the legacy here, because one of the things that, uh, in fact, Nelson George brought this up in our conversation. He talked about legacy. Are we building uh, the foundations? Are we creating the structures so that others can follow in our footsteps? I sold Post and Beam. I could have sold it on the open market, my last restaurant in LA, but I made a deal that was not the same deal I would have made with someone else with our African-American chef who worked with us. And I made it possible for him to have a restaurant because that was important for me to do. And we still mentor him every every week. We're on the phone and social media and menu planning and, you know, and, and it's a and it's a pleasure. I love that. So I know 
enough about you to know that you care about what comes after you and you are building something, Melba, that is, you know, it, it's going to it's going to last. But how, how important is legacy to you? Legacy is everything to me. Um, if there's not a legacy, there's no other reason for me to do this. It's about trying to encourage and educate those who are coming up after me. Um, and how do we do that? We do that by inviting them in. We do that by giving them a seat at the table. That's what's ultimately important to me. Um, you know, last year, I think it was 2019, we were honored by the Deltas. Um, we don't give away verbally. It's not, we don't put out a press release whenever we do stuff. We just do it. But um, we donated over $206,000 in food and product um, in the year 2019. And the reason we do that, we give to the Girl Scouts in terms, but we also give to world money. Um, it's important to show our kids firsthand. This is what it looks like. But more importantly, if I can do it, you can do. If I can do it, so can you. Um, and explaining the steps of how we got here. You know, Ophelia DeVore was my mentor when I was 9, 10, 11 years old. And for those who don't know who Ophelia DeVore is, and I know Ambassador does, um, she was the first Black woman to own a modeling school and a um, and a modeling agency. She, she supplied um, Johnson from Jet Magazine and Ebony Magazine with, with the majority of their models. One of her models, Cecilia Cooper, was the first one to be Miss Cons for the Cons Film Festival. And Ophelia DeVore, when I was nine, taught me the power of positive mental thinking. She taught me the power of magic of the mind. She taught me the power of writing things down. Sounds simple? To this day, I write things that are important to me and things that I want to see come to fruition down. The mind operates so that if you can see something, you, you start to believe it. If you can believe it, you put deeds in motion to achieve it. And so around my house, I have things written down that I look at on a daily basis to keep me motivated. And so leaving a legacy and showing our kids how to do it, it's not a secret, you know? I think my post today said something about um, me not being special. Successful people are not gifted. We just work hard and succeed on purpose, you know? So there's nothing special about me. I just work hard and I don't give up. There's so many, I always say before we spell can't, we've got to spell can, right? So there's so many obstacles that are going to be in your way, but you have to persevere. And when you look at a recipe, when I was making my first cake, I'll never forget. I didn't know to let it cool, came out, all three layers came out perfectly. But when I began to ice my cake, the second and third layer slid to the ground. It was an obstacle. But what did I do? Went right back in the kitchen, made my three layers, let them cool down for half an hour. And then I iced that cake. And it was a beautiful, perfectly baked spice cake from my Uncle Leroy. And that's what we've got to teach our kids. I didn't succeed the first time. Minton's we never opened. Got all the publicity in the world. Didn't open. What was slated to be Melba's ended up being Virgil's because I didn't do the deal. But I didn't let that stop me. Instead, what I did was I looked at the fact that, oh my God, I had an opportunity to work with Drew, to work with Bob, to work with Artie Cutler. And I gained so much knowledge that's invaluable to this day by working with these guys and also working, of course, with my aunt, the late, great Sylvia Woods. So nothing, if it doesn't happen first, if it's something you want, don't give up. Hang in there. Sooner or later, the door is going to open. Those are wise words, Melba. And I, and I just have to tell you, I'm so proud of you. Right. You know, I've, I've been in the business, you know, a long time. And to see what you've accomplished, um, to listen to you speak, to read the, the things that um, I read where you're quoted. And when I reading your resume, I was like, damn, I need to get busy. <laughs> Melba's Elba's been about it. <laughs> but uh, I'm just really, really proud of you, Melba. And uh, just encourage you, please keep going and uh, just keep your voice out there for, for us all to hear. And um, I thank you for, for taking the time to join us today. I'm really, really grateful for you spending the time. Thank you so much for having me, giving me a seat at the corner table. Uh, thank you, Melba. Thank you. Thank you. 
Folks, we turn at this time in the program, Corner Table Talk, to Ambassador Shabazz and how we move. How are you moving? What's happening? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm moving my shoulders. It looks like it's a dance, but I'm really trying to get those muscles going. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm just sitting back and listening to um, the interview and a young lady I knew decades ago, watching her young. And I think back to when I met you, when you're in my life, cross paths and working in a family restaurant, right, to do your part. And what happens decades later to the point that other people are inspired by each of you respectively. And she, uh, while younger than us, carries the torch, the bridge from all the things that were invested in her. And as she talks about her journey from Harlem to the Boogie Down Bronx and then back to Harlem by choice and the path that she's leading for others, I understand clearly why she's the president of the New York City Hospitality Alliance. The passion share, the journeys expressed during this um, time with you at the corner table, very rich. And I look forward to being back in touch with her to just sort of check some of those dots that um, my time, my geographic time away needs to catch up on. I'm really looking for it. It was really reminiscent of an era recaptured by, and I know her aunt and all those that went before us are really proud of her, as am I. Um, really grateful for hearing that. And as she talked about traditional foods and, and comfort foods, and, you know, I grew up in a family, a large family, um, the eldest of six, and we never let budget define or determine what went on our plate, or in my mother's case, what nourished our bodies. Mm-hmm. But we did it simply or simplistically. So whether you're going to feed everyone, my mother often inherited the neighborhood children too. So we had the same ingredients. And how do you take what would be on each one's individual plate and turn it into a one pot, right? Or something collective. Even if after simmered down, it was on went over noodles or rice or, or something, but it was always called something. My mother had a way to make everything seem like it was gourmet and intended, right? So, you know, even if you eat your spinach, you'll be beautiful like Aunt Betty. I mean, I was about nine when I realized that she was the prize, you know, um, or she was the aspiration. And, you know, Melba talked about uh, looking down the street in Harlem and seeing a statue yeah. of Fred- Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman in the other direction. Um, what What serves as your reminders of how to maintain your equilibrium when, you know, we're not just dealing with trauma, we're dealing with being traumatized, which is an ongoing state of being. What what brings you back to center and allows you to stay so clear and, uh, and focused? I think I've always been a meditative kid and I came from people where pauses and introspection was as potent as action. Um, and for me, that's why I say I look forward to Ramadan, not because I say, you know, five prayers a day, but I might say 20 <laughs> hmm. just based on the stillness, right? So I'm not the uber practicing person, but I am an introspectively spiritually balanced person. And what I get to say to people right now is, ah, can't do it right now. Right now is a time where across the globe, there are billions of people who are sending a prayer up and in the rotation of the time zones, that means that there's a prayer going up, you know, every couple of hours in collection. Hmm. So I want to be 
part of that potent energy right now. And in that, I ask for not just scripture repeated, but real tailored and customized asks in terms of my children, in terms of the children of others, in terms of peace of mind, in terms of uh, preservation. How do how are we productive? How do I make sure that I'm not just saying and have a nice day, but mean it and intend it and help you get across the street with that intention? So one of the things that also happens, so people think, wow, man, Ramadan, how can you eat not eat all day? Well, it's not supposed to be a punishment. So if you are lightheaded, you should have something that you need to digest fluids, um, vitamins. I usually start a week before so that I'm already in gear. Um, and at certain ages, you should not um, challenge yourself. But I make sure if I have to ingest anything, it's fluid, right? And I don't mean soup with with with, uh, with bits of meat in it. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I just mean, so right now for me, it is an energy drink, but I always want to do it afterwards. Then you break your fast. Um, traditionally, we break our fast with a soup called harira, which is a traditional Marcus, Ma, uh, Moroccan soup that is just so sumptuous and tasty. And it's like a comfort food. So you don't just have to do it during Ramadan. It could be year round. And the Is it bait- just broth? Is there any anything? No. Are you kidding? Mm. But colored people just can dine on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, including North Africa and across the globe. No, it is tasty. It's a stew. It's a soup. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it has um, the base includes all of the herbs and seasonings such as cinnamon and uh, um, salt and garlic and um, ginger and turmeric mm-hmm. in terms of mm-hmm. tastes. And, you know, you make sure that the roux is already set up and then you add in the various um, vegetables and tomato. Mm. I'm not a, a heavy on tomato, but it, when it's simmered down, and then some people will add in, you know, the, the lamb and mm. things. We use chicken and we, my mother put more vegetables in it, but the protein comes from the lentil and the chickpea. And that's uh-huh. where you, the, the, the body of it comes from. And it's really tasty. And usually people and tell, have Tell that. us the name again. Harira. H-A-R-I-R-A. Harira. And it's a Moroccan stew. Well, it's, it's based... It's a Middle Eastern stew. Mm -hmm. And Morocco is one of the places that is really famous for it year round. So if you go into a Moroccan restaurant, you don't have to wait till Ramadan to have it. It will likely be like like people's chicken noodle soup or or chili. When you go Mm -hmm. into a a store, Parira is likely to be on the menu. And this is one of those things that at least no matter where you are in the globe, when Harira comes out, you know where you are. See, now, you know know what you do to me because you know I'm a person that once you suggest (laughs) some food to me, you get my taste buds going and now that's what I want to, I'm going out now to try to find this Moroccan stew and that's exactly what I want. Ambassador Shabazz, I thank you for joining us. Um, Be well. Thank, Thank you very much. Shukran. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson. Produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Coordinating producer Lauren Turner. Theme music Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producers Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a Say It Loud Network production.